We are back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Today, we're joined by Mark Bauerlein. He's the author of The Dumbest Generation Grows Up, From Stupefied Youth to Dangerous Adults. Now, He's also Professor Emeritus of English at Emory University and an editor at First Things. This is a great, actually, opportunity to talk about an issue we talk about here a lot, but not with people who have literally written books on the subject. So, Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Thank you, Emily. I'm glad to join you. Absolutely. Okay, so tell us about the book. Obviously, you've also written The Dumbest Generation, How the Digital Age Stupefies Young Americans and Jeopardizes Our Future or Don't Trust Anyone Under 30. So that book and and this book, what happened between that time period um, that sort of necessitated this follow-up? Yeah, I, I did the first Dumbest Generation book in 2008, and I did that because, you remember, we well, you may not be old enough. Remember, <laughs> but everyone was talking about these millennials in 2005, 06, and they were aligned with the new digital age. Web 2.0 was taking off, and these 15-year-olds with these tools in hand, and they were out in front with, with YouTube and, and Facebook, video games, Twitter, what was just, what was coming, Instagram would be here, so the new iPhones, all the texting, they were going to lead America into the 21st century. They could run circles around the grownups with these devices in hand, and they were optimistic, confident, they were ambitious, they were going to college in record numbers, they were progressive and tolerant, they helped elect America's first African-American president, and when they get older, they, they're going to be the greatest generation of, of, uh, of modern times. <laughs> and I looked at this and I said, you know, for a 15-year-old to walk around with 250 pictures of himself in his pocket is a very <laughs> bad thing. Uh, 4,000 text messages in, in a month, no, no, very bad. Uh, I go to the library, every computer screen is occupied. I go up to the book stacks and lie down for three hours and no one bothers me. So. It was it was time to say no. This is not a good thing. And you know, I did that book, and it got quite a bit of notice. And then the general response among the intellectuals and academics was, "You old grouch, <laughs> get off my lawn, uh, luddite." People are always complaining about the young. And you know, I, I said, "Boy, you guys. I mean, can can you ex- exercise any authority at all? I mean." Can, can you be an elder now that you are an elder? I mean, you know, you, you really want to walk into class for the first time in, in that September when you're 50 years old and suddenly you've got a little ponytail and an earring to show how you're, you're down with the kids. <laughs> so that, that was the general response. This is bad. This is, this is not going to end up well. And 15 years later, here we are. How are the millennials doing? Uh, they are more depressed, more anxious, more narcissistic, more pessimistic than uh, generations were at the same age. They have very high job dissatisfaction. They're not getting married, having kids, forming families and settling down, which is probably a sign of the the pessimism uh, in in their lives. Uh, They, on the social attitudes, as for their tolerance and progressive, open-minded, broad-minded attitudes, 
they come up more intolerant than older generations. They are more vindictive. They have high social mistrust and that they, they want to take revenge on people who they see have done wrong. This is where we get the, the cancel culture that they endorse at a much higher rate than older generations. So things are not going well for them. And I, I pin this on, and this is why I have the new book. I pin this on what happened 15 years ago. They dove into their screens, the youth culture. Yes, the screens gave them the universe of knowledge, but that's not what they were interested in. 15 year olds are interested in other 15 year olds. It was peer pressure, youth culture. That, that's what the tools really meant. And they didn't get a grounding through the education they got or the popular culture they got that gave them religion, patriotism, country, didn't give them great stories, great heroes, great music. I mean, when I was that age, I didn't want that either, but I couldn't shut it out. I couldn't go to my room and shut the door and open to all my friends. I had to listen to Walter Cronkite talking about Watergate because I, I, there was the only one screen in the whole house and there was only one phone. It was called a landline. You had to, you had to put your finger in a knob and turn it several times to make a call. And so uh, they didn't get a lot of adult adult pressure to go with the peer pressure. They didn't get the 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 grown up truths of life, the great the great stories and heroes and ideas. And now they're in adulthood and they don't have the equipment to handle what what happens in their lives because you know Twitter Twitter and Facebook aren't don't make them happy. Uh, you know Instagram Pictures of the food you're going to eat in 10 seconds. You know, what a bore. I mean, at age 33, is that, that just doesn't do it for them. So they're, they're angry and they're, and they're bitter. And we can see this in things like how they responded in November 2016. Hmm. That, that horrible man is in the White House? No. Well, you want to say, you guys, did you think that you never lose? This is politics. Goes up and down. People were freaked out when Teddy Roosevelt went <laughs> in the White House. I mean, this is this is just you know, deal with it. This is ordinary life. But for them, it was a trauma. Yeah, and they overreact to things. There's march in the streets uh, uh, for for Black Lives Matter and break some windows and and uh, uh, go crazy over pronouns. Sheesh. <laughs> well, and this is, if you were paying attention back in 2008, as of course you were, Mark, but uh, if other people have been paying attention in 2008, they would have known the sort of pronoun phase was coming down the pipe. Like that was, uh, you know, in motion, I mean, even earlier than 2008, but if you were paying attention in 2008, this sort of fragility, um, mental, psychological fragility was very much being, um, the, the conditioning was sort of in motion. Um, and a lot of people just didn't take it 
seriously for the reasons you said when you were looking back on when you released the, the book initially, which is, listen, the old people, they always like to rag on the young people. The, the youths are always, you know, sort of a scapegoat for the frustrations of uh, people as we age. Um, but do you, was there anything or is there anything sort of frustrating when you look back and you say, no, there was really, there were so many reasons to be alarmed by this. Um, why do you think people didn't pay attention to all of the red flags and the, the warning signs um, that were sort of easily discerned um, back then? Well, the, the mentors of my age, the boomers, <laughs> they grew up with, with the 60s and into the 70s and the youth movement was was very big. They, they listened to, you know, the who, talking about my generation, hope I die before I get old. And they, they didn't want to end up as the stern elder. They, they, they wanted to stay, stay young, or at least in sympathy with the young. They, they didn't want to be the kind of guy who the young would want to rebel against. That would put them in, in, in the villain role. And they didn't realize that the generational compact requires that you play a different role when you're 60 than you do when you're 20 relative to people of different age groups. I mean, I, I, I embrace the role of, of the curmudgeon because that's my job. It, it helps 17 year olds grow up when they've got, you know, the guy, uh, and the guy telling them straighten up, fly right, you know, stop being a punk. This is something that should have, I mean, if I were 17, I would resent it, but good for me to, to do that. I mean, one of the, crises we have today is the number of young men in particular, actually it affects girls too, who grew up with no fathers. So they don't have that kind of male elder voice giving them the steadying discipline of being a grown man or for a, for a girl seeing how a grown man is, is supposed to behave. So they take their lessons from their peers it's not going to help them grow up. It's going to make them into 25-year-old, 15-year-olds who precisely overreact to things, who are all caught up in issues of respect. And uh, so I, I, I couldn't believe, I mean, one chapter of the old book was called The Betrayal of the Mentors. And in this book, I begin by saying, what have we done to them? What have we, me, boomers, the elders, people in mentoring position, the teachers, not only parents, teachers, or aunts or uncles, or ministers, intellectuals, psychologists, anyone in that supervisory position relative to the young, we, we abandoned them. We left them to their tools all, all day and all night, and now they're groundless, they're rootless. I mean, to, to tell them in school that their country is a shameful, guilty entity that we have done horrible things in the past, and we're still doing it, by the way. Mm. Uh, that makes them feel bad about their own country. And Emily, P 
people actually want to feel good about their homeland. It's actually a better feeling <laughs> to be patriotic than to be unpatriotic. It's demoralizing. I mean, th think of an African-American kid, 15 years old, in school. The 1619 Project is, is a unit in class. And wh what is he told? What did this country, of which you are a citizen, do to your forebears? Raped them, whipped them, worked them to death, stole them from their home, broke up their families. And by the way, they're still doing horrible things. This country is going to exploit you, victimize you, discriminate against you. What, what a message to hand to the 15-year-old about your own country. I, I don't know what they expect the 15-year-olds to do with that, apart from the microscopic percentage of those 15-year-olds who end up becoming activists. Something... Something that's interesting is thinking back to 2007, 2008, and I have actually gone back and looked at the quotes from Mark Zuckerberg and from President Obama and from other uh, sort of high profile people at the time when it came to Facebook um, and all and, and all of these new sort of uh, creations of Silicon Valley that were supposed to bring us closer together, that were supposed to, um, you know, mend the all of the, the wounds of humanity and uh, foster um, harmony, international harmony. It's amazing to sort of look back on that. There was so much optimism and there was so much love for social media at the time. Um, but I'm curious, as you look back on that, social media is a huge part of uh, what is ailing, uh, you know, the, the so-called dumbest generation right now. Um, but you, you also identified it that it would be a problem at the time. So I'm curious if you could speak a little bit to um, what you saw then and, and how it's played laid out and, and how you're sort of diagnosing it right now in this new book. You know, one thing Zuckerberg said, I think a few years later is, you know, Facebook, we're, we're trying to make it so you never ever have to be alone anymore. You never have to be lonely again, which is, which is an awful goal because one of the things very important in every individual's life is having moments of solitude and silence that gives you time for meditation for reflection if you're religious for prayer and it it helps to ground you you know to, to, to disconnect you know great great you know jesus has to leave go by off by himself for a while muhammad i mean all, all great religious figures need their time of contemplation and one of the attributes of maturity is knowing how to be alone. You get lonely. I've been, I've been painfully, psychotically lonely at times in my youth. And it's something you, you, you have to learn how to do. And if you've got that phone, if you've got the connection always there, you can learn how not to, you, you never have to learn to be alone and you never will get the benefits of being alone, of having the meditative moments. And a whole lot of these 30 year olds, they can't be alone. I mean, even it comes down to having the TV on all the time, they, 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 the silence. Hmm bothers them 
Mm. And this is a poor conditioning. This is one of those bad tools that are, are important tools that they don't possess for a grown-up life. This is an ad I'm really excited to bring to you because it addresses a problem we talk about all of the time on this program. Blinkist has the perfect content to help you be a better, smarter, and more knowledgeable version of yourself in 2022. Their goal is to empower people to grow personally and professionally by discovering content that inspires, motivates, and gives you new perspective on your lives and in the world in 2022. So how do they do that? Well, with 22 ideas for 2022, Blinkist's content can incredibly impact your lives. So there are titles of books on Blinkist and they advertise themselves on their website as big ideas in small packages. So you can read major books by people like Scott Gottlieb, who has uncontrolled spread on Blinkist. Even Roger Scruton, How to Be a Conservative, that's on Blinkist. You can read books from prominent authors, books that are making a huge impact on our politics and on our culture. Ryan Holiday, who's been on this podcast, you can listen to Lives of the Stoics, you can read Lives of the Stoics, and it says right here on Blinkist's website with a subscription that book becomes a 13-minute read. Trey Gowdy, Doesn't Hurt to Ask, that book becomes a 15-minute read on Blinkist. They have such a huge library of really important and impactful titles. If you want to read Ilhan Omar's book, you can do that in a truncated time period and it becomes digestible. We are drowning in content right now in our world. And to be able to to condense important ideas from major books that are so impactful is an invaluable contribution. It's exactly the kind of innovation that we need in this high-tech world where, again, we are drowning in content. And to be able to consume it responsibly does require some work. And this condenses the important information from those books without losing anything. That is an aha moment, right? This is an innovation that is bringing us something important that works with the way we live our lives now. And too many people, because of the way we live our lives now, just don't have enough time to get to books, period. This makes books accessible. So right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash Federalist to start your seven-day free trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash Federalist to get 25% off and a seven-day free trial. Blinkist.com slash Federalist. And it's another thing about this book is that a lot of people have sort of turned their attention to Gen Z when, in fact, it is the millennials who are now in positions of power and who are wielding that power um, or who are just wielding their power as as fathers and mothers and employees. They may not even have to be in in Silicon Valley or in Manhattan C-suites to be wielding this this cultural power. Um, But people have, have turned their attention 
election. And these are the, the real sort of power brokers in, in the country right now. Um, and it's I, I love how you call them digital natives or reflect on how people refer to them as, as digital natives. And I should say us because I'm a millennial. Um, it's All right, it's over. That's it. <laughs> you're not supposed to trust anyone of my <laughs> and, you know, it's it's entirely fair, actually. Um, but did things turn out to be uh, worse than you expected? Because I think a lot of the negative traits that or a lot of the, the sort of negative trends that do ail my generation are, are even more acute for Gen Z. And do you think things have progressed uh, worse than even somebody like you imagined? It, it has it has gotten worse. You know, one thing that is I saw it before on an individual level. Uh, of what these tools were doing to individuals, but I, I didn't pick up really the mass effects, which are what cancel culture relies upon. You know, the formation of uh, activities where you can target someone by, uh, you know, learning, lear- learning so-and-so wrote something on Facebook and, she works at a Catholic school in a diocese in, in, in New Jersey, and she wrote something against homosexual marriage. And that diocese then gets 50,000 phone calls and 100,000 emails protesting against her. This actually is, is a real case uh, from, from about six years ago, uh, when, when the time of Obergefell. But that, that mobilization using so i mean i should have we should we all should have predicted this right uh you know the madness of crowds (laughs) that was empowered by the these networks that made it so easy you know i can i can sign a petition with two thousand other people uh and this petition can get going in, in in a few hours to get someone fired for telling a dumb racial joke uh, on 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 Snapchat, that that surprised me, um, and frankly, the 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 cancel culture itself, the 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 speed with which it has moved ahead, that couldn't happen without all of these social media tools, uh, and so that that weapon. That's different. Now, Generation Z, let me say something about them. Generations rebel against the preceding generation. I mean, if you're 19 years old, you don't want to listen to some 33-year-old social justice warrior scolding <laughs> you, you know, a thought crime that you might have. That, that, that annoys you. The problem is that this woke revolution has careened through all the major institutions in our country, the institutions of advancement, the universities, the professional schools, the, the corporations, uh, the media, so that if you are a Gen Z kid in that top 10%, you're ambitious, you wanna enter the professional world, you wanna be a success, you want that big internship, uh, you know that you are under surveillance now the way no generation has before even even the millennials back in 2015 were under the kind of surveillance that we have these days so you 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 have to be very careful if you if you're a biblical kid you keep it quiet (laughs) 
say anything about sex. Just say nothing about race except the approved messages. The conformity in the elite, not outside the elite, but within the elite, the conformity has never been worse. I have never seen political correctness uh, policed so vigilantly as, as it is today. Uh, I mean, I'm, my, most, my main exposure is college campuses, but you know, I worked in the federal government for a while and I worked in the, in the media as well. And people are watching and everyone is nervous. Even, even my liberal professor colleagues are nervous. Mm. I mean, they, 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 they have to be careful now. If you've taught Huck Finn for two decades, you think twice now about putting Huck Finn on the syllabus. It's got the N-word in it. Right. So be careful. Uh, it, 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 whoever would have thought my, my oh-so-liberal Democrat colleagues across the country, if you said to them in 2005, hey, you, 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 you're going to have to start your class by going through the roster and asking each student what his preferred pronoun is. They would have looked at you and said, are you nuts? Another, another, another crazy right-wing conspiracy theorist. There we go. Yeah. And, and so they, they have to be nervous about how they relate to students. Because remember, Emily, even if it's just a minor group, a small group, if you've got a class of 35 kids, and two of them on the end of the semester make a complaint that you committed some microaggressions against them <laughs> on the basis of race or, or sex, whatever federal identity you pick. And the 33 students in the class didn't say one word about this, gave you pretty good teaching evaluations. That doesn't matter. Those two will file a complaint, the university will take it very seriously, and your, your life is gonna be miserable for months. Even if you survive it, the, the process is the punishment. Right. So it only takes a small number of activists or, or, or triggered people who are who now have a kind of moral authority in all of our major institutions for people to make a calculation. You know, I, I'm just, I, I'm just not going to, I don't want to get into anything. I'm going to play it safe. I'm not going to open my mouth. I don't want, I just want to go home hmm. and relax. I've got a family. I've got kids. I've got bills to pay. This is where, where it demoralizes you. And, and I'm afraid that uh, this, this woke and the cancellation are, are affecting a lot more people than we realize. I, I think something you uh, tap into, which is really important, is you write that their mentors, the millennials, the, this generation, their mentors have failed them. And I do think there's some displaced rage that gets tossed at millennials who were conditioned um, by pretty much every major institution, as you talk about, um, to be 
overly, disproportionately negative about their country. They were assigned Howard Zinn um, or diluted versions of Howard Zinn that make their way into uh, textbooks. Um, and they're now sort of grappling with that. They were told that Facebook would be uh, wonderful by you know people like Barack Obama, boomers like Barack Obama. Um, and now they're just in dire straits. I mean, a lot of them are unhappy. Um, a lot of them, as you say, are, are struggling with mental illness that is induced by this sort of new way of life. Um, to what extent should the blame be placed on, um, and I'm not saying it, we don't deserve any of it, because we certainly do, but to what extent should uh, the blame be placed on earlier generations who did push a lot of this conditioning on millennials? Yeah, I mean, I spent some time in the book placing blame on a particular group, and that is the Silicon Valley people who created these tools, and they actually hired consultants in neuroscience and psychology who were experts in addiction and attention to make these tools super attractive, to make these tools the kinds of things that would glue your eyes to the screen and that these Silicon Valley people, you know, they don't let their own kids do it. Steve Jobs famously didn't let his kids get on the computers at home all the time. <laughs> the, the schools in Silicon Valley that are very popular are things like the Waldorf schools, which are very low tech. They have no screens in these places. They know what these tools do to young minds and they know how important it is for 12, 13, 14 year olds to read real books and long books and spend time doing that, not have this hyper stimulation of, of the screen and the social temptations that, that go along with them. So they deserve a lot of blame. A lot of blame goes to humanities teachers who said, forget Western civilization, that's, you know, Eurocentric stuff. Let's have more diversity and more contemporary stuff. And what was the message to kids with that? You know, there's nothing really in the past that is crucial. There's nothing essential about, say, the founding that I need to know. The world isn't really a very meaningful place. That's, that's what their diversity really told these kids. It didn't give them the profound stories of love and rejection and betrayal. It didn't give them Dido and Aeneas. It didn't give them Romeo and Juliet. It didn't, it didn't give them Tristan and Isolde. They, they don't have the depth of the, the long shadow of the past, the heroic figures, the larger than life events they don't have no sense of the tragic in human affairs. They cannot understand how Robert E. Lee can choose the wrong side, even though he, he didn't like slavery. He chose the wrong side, and yet he could still be a great man. That's the kind of human complication. You can be a great man and still be morally compromised in, in certain ways. So they, they, they have a simplistic conception of human nature so that when they face something 
a person saying certain things, they, they want to categorize it very quickly. They can't give people mixed motives. You're racist. You're sexist. You know, the pigeonholing is how they approach other people, especially people who have different opinions than their own, because they have no backgrounds. They have no models of these, these kinds of human moral complication. And I talk about this as the mentors, the teachers didn't induct them into the, the complications of human affairs. You know, I, I quote Orson Welles quoting the, the filmmaker Jean Renoir, the, the painter's son. Renoir said, um, there is one awful thing in the world, and that is that everyone has his reasons. The word awful doesn't quite pick up the French word, effrayable. And uh, the, the thing about that is people have reasons, even when it seems like they're doing bad things. Villains have reasons. That doesn't morally exculpate them, but it, it does demand you understand what is going on in that other person's head. What, what, are, what are the reasons why he's saying this or, or doing that? that? That's a challenge for all of us in an open society. We're going to meet people who are quite different from ourselves. And you got to try to understand them. You got you to give them a little space to be different from you. That's what a pluralistic society requires. And that's what our society has been from the beginning. We had more diversity you know, in 1790 in the United States than anywhere in the world. And it forced people to have a thicker skin. That's what the First Amendment demands of us. You know, give people their space. Right. You, 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 can't, you can't jump to conclusions. And I don't like that. You know, because that, that leads to going after people for thought crimes, right? Right. And something I, I have been thinking about a lot lately is whether this is sort of a, a self-correcting problem. And, and maybe it's not. And that's one thing that I think it might be true. And it's, I spend some time worrying about it, like the anxious millennial that I am. But, uh, you know, is there an argument um, that because millennials are, I think, so obviously being failed by this prescription for life um, that younger people, and maybe it'll be the generation behind uh, the Zoomers, behind Gen Z, maybe it'll take a, a generation or two to iron itself out, but people want to be happy, people want to be fulfilled, and as you write, you know, millennials have sort of turned to politics and to the materialism of Instagram and uh, all kinds of different forms of materialism, really, and that's that's not successful. I mean, that doesn't make for fulfillment, that doesn't make for happiness um, and, and happy lives. So is there an argument that this will be sort of self-correcting as the, it becomes more and more abundantly obvious that uh, these prescriptions are not, um, are, are not working for millennials and maybe even Gen Z? Well, you're, you're right. You're right, Emily. It, it, this is not sustainable. It's not happy. These people can't laugh. No jokes. You know, they, they, you know, look, look at Stephen Colbert. He used to be funny. Mm. Now he, he's not funny at all. And when he, when he tells his jokes, people don't laugh. They applaud. That means it's not a joke. It, it's, just, it's, just a, it's just a session of, of mutual affirmation of we're the good people 
and those guys are the bad people. Let's all applaud. <laughs> uh, that's that that isn't that isn't sustainable. It doesn't please the human spirit. Now, here is the question: Is it a correction? Um, the problem with the people's collapsing worldview is that if if they don't see another positive worldview to replace it, they just get destructive. I mean, they, they, these these kids are, are the millennials are utopian in that they did they had a utopian space. It was called the bedroom when they were fifteen years old. Go inside, turn on all the tools, the devices. You got the video game going, you got your music playing. Everything you like can be streaming in to your little existence. You got your big friends, networks, and you can gossip, you can spend pictures back and forth. Wonderful. Why can't life be like that now that I'm 33? You know, it was so good and things were, things were supposed to continue this way. That's what I was promised. And, and so they turn to things like socialism and Black Lives Matter and social justice and Antifa even. And what, uh, what, a, what a disappointed utopian does, as we've seen many times, is uh, find a reason. And the reason is simple. We just got some bad people in the world. And if we just get rid of the bad people, we will have the wondrous society that we all deserve. Hmm. So I, I don't, I, I worry about that destructive impulse not being corrected, but just destroying a lot of things and a lot of damage is done uh, to, to people's lives. Right. I mean, I, Emily, I, I think this year, Coming up to the midterms, especially if if this polling holds that looks like a disaster for the Democrats. And again, you never know. Eight months is a is a lifetime in politics. But if it looks like that, that's coming, we're going to see some very bizarre episodes in this country come about. I mean, who would have thought that the killing of an unknown guy, a sketchy guy in Minneapolis uh, in, in police custody would end up sparking riots and, and fires and looting in 200 cities across this country. Who, who, would, who would have thought that that, that would happen? Um, I was just going to say, what, what you're talking about sounds like the sort of anarchy of 2020. Yeah. So I... I expect the next eight months to be very interesting times, unfortunately. Right. And, and I think we're going to see things that are quite unexpected. Yeah. That we're, we're, it's a crazy time. The pandemic has, has aggravated so many things. I mean, who would have thought that Parents at school board meetings here in Virginia, where I live, that parents at school board meetings would, would turn the state red at the top. Right, right. Who, wait, parents, school, school board meetings are the most boring things in the world. <laughs> they, they talk about budgets and textbooks and, 
you know, and, and, and they and they argue with one another uh, like children. That's a school board meeting. Well, suddenly this becomes a national story and the media is trying to present it as right wing activists. But I think a whole lot of those parents were not right wingers. Right. A lot of oh. liberals. <laughs> they're, 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 you know, eight year olds, you know, be, being fed, you know, this weird gender fluidity ideology and saying, well, wait, I don't want this. I'll, I'll do that at home. You know, I don't want to my anyway. So no, that's absolutely true. From our reporting, a lot of them were definitely not conservatives. <laughs> yes. And, and the, I think it shows that what an unstable world we have given the, the young in America. I mean, this gender fluidity is instability. That, that is gender fluidity is, is something that, you know, maybe 10% of the population can, can find, Oh, experimental. Oh, this is all neat. This is great. But most of the people think, what is this? I like clarity. I like, I like solidity. Hmm. I don't want, I don't want so much disruption here in my kids lives and, and kids have a hard time with that themselves. I, I would say, I mean, adolescence is chaotic and complicated enough hmm. without, without ideologues coming in and, uh, destabilizing right. so many other things right but you know when you uh if you can if you, you can destabilize that opens the the ground for revolution right that that seeds change change mm. and um the anarchy i believe some are very happy to see taking place. Yeah, it's hard to disagree with that. Um, Mark Bauerlein, thank you so much for your insights today. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Emily. Glad to join you. Of course. Well, the book is out on February 1st. Um, it is called The Dumbest Generation Grows Up from Stupefied Youth to Dangerous Adults. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. We'll be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray. You got me right.